Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond has been preparing women and men for all areas of ministry for over 25 years. From justice and peace building to religious liberty, BTSR offers a meaningful and relevant education experience for a changing world. Students at BTSR come from all walks of life and every stage of life. BTSR offers flexible class times and online options while providing the high quality of education that BTSR has known for over two decades. Visit BTSR to learn more. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversation. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship and interviews with those doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, practitioners, and authors from around the globe. This is Andy Hale. Our guest for this week's podcast is Alexia Salvatierra. She's an ELCA pastor and immigration activist. In the coming months, we will feature the work of Trip Fuller, the host of the 70,000-member-strong Homebrewing Christianity podcast, in a podcast centered on the theology of vocation, featuring story photographers, one of the most profound incarnational approaches to ministry. We are also excited to announce that we've recently added Jack Jenkins of Think Progress and Zach Hunt, a profound writer, to the upcoming podcast episodes. But before we jump into our conversation, we'll make you aware of an opportunity coming up in 2018. CBF's Church Works will be held in San Antonio, Texas at Trinity Baptist Church, February 26th through the 28th. Church Works creates space for renewal and ministry through partnership of creativity, community, and worship. To teach the people of God, educators need to place to be equipped, to be inspired, and to be renewed. Church Works is a three-day event for all practitioners of education and spiritual formation in congregational settings. Our guest for today is Alexia Salvatierra. She is an ELCA pastor and immigration activist, founder of Faith Rooted Organizing a Network, and the co-author of Faith Rooted Organizing, Mobilizing the Church in Service to the World. She's written for Sojourners and Christian Century. Uh, she is a Lutheran pastor, over 35 years of experience in community ministry, including church-based service and community development programs, congregational community organizing, and legislative advocacy. Um, we were honored to have her as a guest presenter this summer at General Assembly, teaching the fellowship about the Sanctuary Church Movement. Alexia, thank you for taking time out of your crit critical work to uh, talk with me today. Thank you so much, Andy. I'm glad to be with you, particularly at this historic moment. Well, you are a seasoned, ordained Lutheran minister, and while many of our congregations are very ecumenical, some might not be familiar with your story. So, so tell us more about yourself, your story, and your work. Sure. Um, and I'm, I'd love to share, just to start, that I've actually been ordained for 30 years. I was one of the first women ordained in my denomination. And I also often refer to myself as Luther Costal, which sounds like a disease, <laughs> but it's not. You know, I, uh, I grew up in a family... My grandparents were immigrants from Mexico and Russia, and I grew up, and they were part of the anti-church movements in those countries, anti-the Catholic church, of course, at the time, uh, because of the hypocrisy of the church. They were social justice people before that was a phrase. Um, and so I was raised with absolutely no religious tradition or background, and I became a Christian in the Jesus movement of the 70s. And from the get-go, I was charismatic. 
So I found my way to the Lutheran Church, and that's its own story. I, I do believe that I was called to this church. And I actually became a Lutheran partly because I read the works of Martin Luther. <laughs> so I didn't know that much about the actual church. I, I fell in love with the vision of this brother. I said, you know, whatever church he belongs to, I belong to. The vision of grace and the theology of the cross and um, anyhow, so much about, about Luther's vision that really moved me. But um, so I, I think when you come to Christ from completely outside and you have leadership gifts, it's just very natural to end up using them for the kingdom. And then people recognize them. I did not have in mind to become a pastor. I just kept finding myself doing the work of a pastor and being acknowledged for that. And people around me saying, you're called to be a pastor. You need to be recognized. You need to be equipped. You need to be prayed for. You need to be supported by the church. You know, and um, when enough people said that to me, and I spent a long time wrestling with the scriptures about whether or not that was actually what God wanted me to do or what God wanted women to do. By the time I got some clarity that I really believed that, that women could be pastors, then I really thought, well, this is a justice issue. If God has called me to do this work, that I would be recognized and equipped to do it. So then I became a pastor. And I've been a pastor for a very long time, but I've never been only a congregational pastor. I've always been called to some form of loving mercy and doing justice. And I believe that there is a spiritual gift of justice, which I can, which I'd love to unpack for your listeners. Well, let's dive deeper into to the work you've done for the last thirty years, um, because as you said, you haven't just pastored a local congregation, um, because for you. Um, the work of the gospel uh, is the work of justice. Yes. So what does right. that look like for you? Well, it started out with community development um, and direct service. And I think that's where most of us start is love in action. The, James, you know, when we go back to James, don't just love in words. Don't, don't face somebody in need and say, you know, I'll pray for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's really insufficient. That's not, the love of God has way more power than that. Uh, so, you know, that's where you start. You start with saying, I, my heart is moved. I'm with you. What can I do for you? What can I do for you being the operative phrase? Because that's, that's where people naturally start. But then after a while, you say, well, stewardship means using all of our gifts for God's kingdom. And so you start to say, well, what other gifts do I have? What, what more can I do? And then at some point, particularly if you come from a more communal culture like I do, you begin to say not only what I can do for you, but what can we do together? Uh, which, of course, multiplies your capacity. When you stop seeing the person in need as just a need, and you begin to see them as a person who brings gifts and capacity and who God is with. Uh, so then then you begin to do community development, which is what can we do together that not only benefits the person in need, but the whole community, so that it becomes a, a feeder for everyone to experience more abundant life, which of course is Jesus's promise to us, you know, that we may have, that he came that we may have life, John 10, 10, and to have it abundantly, or as World Vision would say, the quali full quality of life for every child. 
So, you know, then you start working on that together. And then at some point you run into what I call the wall around the fish pond, right? That you've been giving a fish and then you've been teaching people to fish and then you're all fishing together. And then you run into the walls around the fish pond. So let me give you a, a, a couple examples of a wall around the fish pond. Uh, when I, I did homeless ministries for many years, when I first did homeless ministries, you know, you would help someone to get a job, ultimately. And if you got them to get a job, then they could get housing. It was that simple, right? And then we started hearing more and more about families who were living in their cars because we had helped them to get a job. But they would get a job and they couldn't possibly, with a minimum wage job, afford housing in Southern California. <laughs> so we begin to say, ooh, why isn't there enough housing in Southern California? And what can we do about that? And that becomes a public policy question, right? So uh, that's what the, the walls that are put up around the fish pond are walls that are made by public decision makers. You know, I, you can make a private decision that affects you, your small business, your little church, maybe your block. But there are some people that are making public decisions, decisions that affect whole messes of people thousands of people, more than thousands of people. And the wonderful thing about a democracy is that all of us have the right in a democracy to be involved in the process of public decision-making. In fact, we don't just have a right, we sort of have a duty because if you don't get involved, democracy doesn't work. Democracy is supposed to involve all of the people in the process of public decision-making. And so you begin to realize that somebody is making the decisions about how much affordable housing is available. And then you decide, ooh, maybe instead of burying our talents in the ground, we should be part of those decisions. And then you begin to say, well, when Christians are part of those decisions, they're gonna be better decisions if we're doing them really listening to God. They're, and we're gonna be salt and light in the process. We're going to be showing the love of God on every level, on the power of God on every level. And that's when you begin to get into advocacy, which is influencing public decision-making. And then organizing is just making sure that it's not just you influencing public decision-making, but you're really bringing the whole community together to deliberate so that organizing is the process of bringing people together for systemic change. And uh, when you bring people together for systemic change in a way that is completely guided and shaped by our Christian faith, that's called faith-rooted organizing. So, you know, it, it was step-by-step, step, Andy, that I actually came into what I spend most of my time doing now, doing and teaching. Hmm. You know, as, as you started to tinker with those walls, as you started to engage um, your community and ask these difficult questions, um, what began to happen? Are there some stories that come to mind? Sure, sure. I mean, the stories that I, the first story that I wanted to share is really very personal, but then the, the second couple of stories are really stories about us and not just about me and us being the church in particular. So um, the story that's very personal is I, I think a key moment for me um, in that transition from just community development to, to really the broader uh, stewardship of the influence that we have as members of a democracy was I was in college and I was pursuing social work and I 
was working in a in a set of at a housing development in a low income housing development, working with the kids doing after school tutoring. And there was an 11 year old girl who confessed to me that she had been raped by her uncle. And um, I started to look into what the alternatives were. And it was so clear at that point, it was, you know, I'm, I'm 61 years old. So this was way before most of the laws that we have that help this process be fair and safe. Well, we, what we noticed was that the process was neither fair nor safe that existed. And I thought, you know, I don't not want to help this girl adjust to her situation. I want to make sure that no other 11 year olds are raped. If there's anything we can do about it, I want to make sure that the process of dealing with this legally is fair and safe. I want to make sure, you know, I don't just want to, to take care of her. I want to change the system so that it works better. That was a really key moment for me in the whole process. Um, and then I want to share a, a number of years later than that, we were doing homeless ministry. I, and I was at, uh, University Lutheran Chapel in Berkeley. And we had a homeless drop-in center and it was Christmas Eve. And there was a mother and father and two little babies that came in and I started calling around looking for a place for them to stay for the night. And there was no room at the inn. You know, there was, there was no shelter with any room in 20 miles. And so I called home to my roommates who I was not getting along very well with at the time. <laughs> Uh, you'll understand why in a minute. And they said to me, no more homeless families coming home with you. <laughs> Which, of course, is why we were not getting along so well. And I said, it's Christmas Eve. And they said, precisely. Um, so I sent a homeless family out into the cold on Christmas Eve. And I read Matthew 25. I, I knew who I was sending out into the cold. And I said, this is just really unacceptable. This is just not okay. And so I started calling all the churches in town and we got together and we decided to do a rotating shelter. And so we did. And that was, it was beautiful to realize that we could do that, that we could just multiply our resources like that just by coming together. It was a love sensation moment. And we did have a lot more beds for folks, but I began to realize that we weren't actually, of course, solving any problems. It was really a band-aid. We were really just giving people a little bit of shelter. So then what we did is we got some of the folks together that we were serving and some of the folks in the churches and we all sat down together and we said, what more can we do? And what we decided was that there was a part of town where there were, there was relatively cheap property homes that were falling apart. And so we got together in the churches and we got together with homeless people and we used the sweat equity model and we rehabbed some housing. And so we created a, about a, a almost block of affordable housing, which was so beautiful, right? Major celebration. And in the middle of the celebration, I suddenly, and I have this inconvenient part of me that always reminds me of truths that I don't want to see. And I think that the Lord is part of that. <laughs> so I was, we were getting having this big celebration. I'm thinking, you know, how many people are we serving with this affordable housing? You know, a handful. And how many people are on the street tonight? And I was in our area and it was about 10,000. And I thought, you know, we've got to figure out a way to take this to scale. And we can't do this with just the church. We have to be in partnership. We have to be in partnership with our leaders, our community leaders, our government. And that was the point at which, um, that was one of those points when we as a coalition really got some clarity that we needed to use all our gifts and not just some of them. And some of our gifts were the gifts 
So that's a broader story. I think we're all um, shaped by our experience, by our upbringing, by our education. Um, you know, and I've had the privilege of uh, seeing scripture through the lens of um, justice. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it's not like Jesus brought about this new idea when he talked about loving neighbor. Um, I mean, you stretch back even to Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, of course, the prophets and how much God is speaking to the people about treating the stranger and foreigner among you as if they are brother, as if they are family. Right. Um, I call it familia justice. You know, what does it mean to be a healthy family rather than a dysfunctional family? Being as we only have one heavenly father, we cannot be anything other than family. The mm-hmm. question now is, are we going to be healthy family or dysfunctional family? And, and we live, we live in a, a climate right now where, um, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ don't see the world that way, don't see others in that way. Um, you know, we, we tend to fall into the category that Jesus talked about when it's easy to love you, others that love you back, um, but how, how much more difficult it is to love those that um, are different from you. Um, and, and, you know, as we, as we looked at this recent political cycle, um, and really this has been elevated the last couple of weeks, of course, with with Charlottesville and other incidents, but you know, even past the election, we're we're digging into um, the aspects of our culture that are uncomfortable, and that is the fact that we still live in a day and age where there's people who believe in uh, racial superiority and discrimination and Islamophobia and xenophobia, um, and and you've spent the last thirty years uh, combating that with the compassion of Jesus. Yes. Um, you know, what does that look like for you? How have you uh, stood against that type of tide? What are you seeing right now within our culture? Um, You know, I think that it's important to understand the word compassion here. Compassion is not pity. Compassion is an English word or a Spanish word consisting of two Latin words, com and pasio. Passion means suffer or feel, and com means with. So Jesus looks at us and he feels our pain as if it's his pain. He feels our hopes and dreams as if they were his hopes and dreams. And that's what moved him on a human level to do all that he did. We have received the compassion of Jesus, all of us. If we are Christians, we know that we have. And so we are called to to give it. But giving compassion, feeling with someone is not the same as feeling sorry for them. It's knowing that if they suffer, you suffer. That's very different, right? It's a very different orientation. And it's a sustaining orientation. And it's a humbling orientation. I think that quite, I think that one of the cores of the division between us is, you know, I'm, is uh, the lie, the deep lie, the lie of the devil, that I'm worth more than you are that I'm better than you are. And we're all, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all on our knees before the throne. And so when we recognize that, when you recognize that the other person and you are actually in the exact same boat, desperately in need of the compassion of Christ, then those walls begin to come down. My experience is that what creates that recognition most powerfully is when people are actually in joint mission together. So when immigrants 
churches and non-immigrant churches are in mission side by side, you begin to look at the other person and begin to say, that's my brother or sister, even if that person doesn't have their full legal papers to be in this country. That, that's my brother or sister called by God. So for, let me just give you a little example. Right now, Pastor Noe Carias is in, in prison. He's in detention. They call it a detention center, but it's a private prison. And he's there because he fled to this country when he was 13 years old, running from the violence in Central America. He's now 42. Uh, his parents, he had been kidnapped. He didn't know where his family were. And he had nowhere to go, and he was terrified. And so he came to the U.S. for the first time at 13. He was deported three times before he was 21. He just kept coming back using different names. He really had nowhere to go. He was terrified to go back for a very good reason. And he, uh, well, you know, when he was 20, he accepted Christ. He became a leader in the Assemblies of God. He ultimately became a pastor and a church planter. He married an American citizen. They have two American citizen children. But he's had this, these deportation orders hanging over his head. And so a couple of years ago, and he has a small construction business, he hires people for the community. Anyhow, he, he went to his wife and he said, let's see if we can clear this up. Well, what he didn't know is that our immigration system is so broken that to remove a deportation order, as one immigration judge once said to me, is the 20-year pulling of a wisdom tooth, and it can cost a million dollars. So they started into this process to try to remove his deportation orders. And they got, because it's a multi-year process, they got a stay of what's called a stay of deportation. Like, they're not going to deport you for a year while this is in court. But of course, it's going to be in court for way more than a year. So... One year, he got into a stay of deportation under the Obama administration. Next year, he gets a stay of deportation under the Obama administration. Then the Trump administration comes in. They give him three more months. Of course, his case isn't done in three more months. So they take him, and they throw him in detention, getting ready to deport him. In that detention center, because it's a private prison, there are worms in the food. Uh, all of this has been documented. There have been multiple, multiple complaints. They keep the facilities at 50 degrees to try to punish people, to cow them, to intimidate them. And that's where Pastor Noe Carias is, awaiting deportation. Uh, the head of the Assembly of God, Dr. George Wood, has been really active in advocating with the White House for him. We've had thousands of letters of people trying to save him. And he's still in prison. That That's a broken system, right? That's a that's an ineffective, illogical, and inhumane immigration system. Most of us know it's ineffective. You get a step closer, you know that it makes the DMV and the IRS look positively sane in comparison, and you get a step closer than that, and you find out that Pastor Carillas is not the only one, that this is a normal situation under a completely unfair system. So anyhow, if, you, if folks in congregations who say deport them all actually knew Pastor Noe Carias. And they knew him not only as someone that they were giving charity to, but someone that they were laboring in the vineyard with. Well, then everything changes. People say, wait a minute, that's not fair. You know, as Americans, we have a great sense of fairness. We really do. Part of our culture. People would say, hey, that is not fair. <laughs> that's wrong. We got to do something about that. Well, that's what happens. The problem is there's not enough people who've had that experience. 
Well, it would alter our perspective of fare as well. You know, people complaining about, you know, waiting five minutes in line to get a cup of $4 coffee. But, you know, it's, it's always been ironic to me that, and, and I'm guilty of this in my own life, that we are biblical literist until it involves an area of our life that we don't want to change. Mm, that's and, so true. And you, you brought up uh, Matthew 25. And, and for those that do not see the gospel as um, an absolute... <laughs> central aspect of the way that we love our neighbor how can you read matthew 25 and not look at anyone else and not see the divine within them right you know i think of i think of something something's been coming back to me a lot lately i was talking to someone yesterday who who said to me well what do you do with all the people that that just resist even even looking at this in the way that you're looking at it and what came back to me was when World Vision was trying to uh, do something about AIDS in Africa, right? And that was very controversial. They're the largest Christian nonprofit in the world, evangelical nonprofit, uh, mostly evangelical. And, uh, and they really felt, Rich Stearns felt called by God to do this, right? To be compassionate in this way. It was hugely controversial. Well, the, the designer of the project is a, a pastor, Steve Hawes. And he's a, he's a down-home guy. I think a lot of your, your folks in the Cooperative Baptist would relate to him. He's, you know, salt of the earth, down-home guy. And he would visit these megachurch pastors in the South who were opposing, who were pulling, withdrawing their support from World Vision because they were working with AIDS. And he, he would say to them, are you ignorant or disobedient? I would never do that, you know. I'm, I'm, that's just not who I am, you know. And but, but I certainly understand the question because I think that sometimes that's what God says to all of us, right? Is that what? Here's the word. This is what the word says. Are you ignorant or disobedient? <laughs> you know, we can we can have a lot of disagreement. And in the evangelical immigration table, I was one of the co-founders the evangelical immigration table and we had people in the table who really you know um believed in offering sanctuary and we had in the table people in the table who really only wanted to work for immigration reform they did not want to deal with people that were undocumented you know we had the whole range but everybody on that table knew that we were called to love the stranger and that there were 92 verses calling us to love the stranger there are maybe three verses on homosexuality maybe there were 92 verses on loving the stranger like okay there are a thousand verses using one of the two biblical words for justice in Hebrew to Hebrew to Greek anyhow so you know we were very clear that this is what God had called us to do was to welcome the stranger now we might have some differences about exactly how to do that but nobody was going to sit around and wait everybody was actively involved in responding to God's command so I think we would be completely negligent if we didn't talk about the actions taken this week to dismantle uh, DACA. And um, you were processing in Los Angeles on Tuesday after Jeff Sessions made the announcement. And, oh, yeah. you know, before we jump into, jump into that, let's set up for some of our listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with, with DACA. It's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It was uh, created by the Obama administration in 2012 as a policy to create created as a legislative remedy for protecting minors who were brought to this country through, through no fault of their own. Uh, they're known as dreamers. They're recipients of DACA. There's roughly 800,000 dreamers in the United States. 
And of course, during the campaign cycle, Donald Trump rallied against illegal immigration and promised to reverse what he called uh, President Obama's unconstitutional executive action. Um, then, of course, on Tuesday, uh, Jeff Sessions comes out and says that uh, they are rescinding uh, DACA. Um, there's a political response to this. There is a Democrat and Republican and independent response to this. There is a conservative and liberal response to this. How should Jesus followers respond to this? Mm, I just love your question. That's always the question, isn't it? You know, if we're going to be able to build, the church could be a major force in this country for a desperately needed unity if we always asked and answered that question first and foremost. Like, what, is, how, what does it mean to follow Jesus in this response? Um, so let me give a little context to DACA here, because there's, this always aches me to hear this whole subject talked about with no history. I've been working with our broken immigration system for 30 years. You know, there's some history to all of this that people need to understand. First thing you need to understand is that there are solutions to our broken system. There are bipartisan, reasonable, profound, moderate balanced solutions. We've had two bills, 2007 and 2013, that were completely bipartisan in every way. And uh, those bills, when you run them by the average person, they get about 75% support. You run the DREAM Act by the average person and you get 90% support. Because the DREAM Act essentially creates a line for, to stand in for kids who were brought here as small children. Uh, because those kids face something, little, little line of legislation in the last immigration legislation in 1995. There's one little sentence that says that if you've been here more than a year undocumented, and there, that can be proven, that you have to go back to your home country for 10 years before you can stand in any line. So these are kids who have no ties, no conscious memory, often don't even speak the original language of their homeland who would have to go back for 10 years, even if they're married to a US citizen, even if they have a job offer from a US employer. So that's called the bar. So you need the DREAM Act so that you can deal with the bar. That's what the DREAM Act is for. So anyhow, when people realize this, we get 90% support in the surveys. We get 75% support for creating an immigration system that is effective, logical, and humane. The problem is, that the people who call Congress are 50, call, the calls are 50 to one against for systemic immigration reform. They're 10 to one against for the DREAM Act. The reason why is because your average American never calls Congress unless it's about you and your family. And immigration is not about enough people. Hmm. So of course the question is, what is the one institution in our society that is mandated to care passionately about people who are not us? If we don't care passionately about people who are not us, we're not followers of Jesus Christ. So, you know, the church is the only answer to this broken system because people want it to be fixed, but they don't want it to be fixed badly enough. So, so that's a little history. So one more piece of history that's critical for people to know. Because the system is such a mess, there are all kinds of regulatory safety nets, regulatory workarounds that have been developed over the years. One of the main ones is called prosecutorial discretion. Prosecutorial discretion has been around since I was in my 20s. 
prosecutorial discretion originally meant that the local ICE director, and before it was ICE, it was INS, had the discretion to focus their enforcement resources on the people they thought were important to detain and deport, so people they thought were a threat to public safety. And then the people who were just caught up in the system could get what Pastor Noe got his first two years, which was a deferral of their deportation while they were trying to work out their situation, right? And there were lots and lots of people in that situation. Uh, what the DREAM Act is, is the extension of that deferral to a group of people. That's all it is. The individual dreamers, I would say most of them would have been eligible for the individual deferral. It just would have taken a lot more government resources to process all those cases individually, where it was very clear from the prioritization of enforcement that had been worked out nationally by 2010. By 2010, there was actually a set of guidelines for field office directors to follow about when to use this. By the guidelines, all those dreamers would have qualified. It just would have been an enormous bureaucratic expense and hassle. So essentially, Obama declared a blanket policy for all of those kids under within certain parameters, the parameters being essentially the same as the regulatory parameters that were being used nationally. Like people don't know this, right? Um, so what the executive orders have done, President Trump's executive orders, is to take away all of that regulatory safety net. So now a person like Pastor Noe Carias or a person like a young dreamer getting straight A's in college, uh, trying, you know, on their way to becoming a doctor, <laughs> that both of those people are in the exact same situation as a drug dealer, as a gang member, that they're all an equal priority for deportation. Um, so that's what President Trump's executive orders have done. Far from focusing on criminals, that's the opposite. The Obama administration was deporting criminals. Um, the Trump administration is deporting college students and uh, pastors as if they were exactly the same level of threat to public safety as drug dealers and gang members. So you can see that, uh, that what happened the other day was that the Trump administration blanketly now has made all of those kids eligible for immediate detention and deportation. Now that's not actually how it's, they, they, I should say, I should be a little clearer. They haven't made them, they haven't put them in that situation yet. They've said that they will be in that situation in six months. So right. what they're essentially saying to Congress is that Congress has to act within the next six months or all of these kids, 800,000 of them, most of whom are our best and brightest that, and who have nowhere to go, who have nobody left in their home countries that they know that those, that we will have that brain drain happen to us and that we will communicate to all of those kids that they are not wanted by our country unless Congress acts. But the problem we have with Congress is the same problem that we've always had, which is that the calls are 10 to one against. Now, hopefully we will galvanize enough of the American public through this publicity to change that. It really does make a huge difference when you call your congressperson they count one call as representing a thousand people who didn't call. So it's very important when you call. Hopefully we'll change some of that equation, but I'm not too confident about it because we haven't been able to change it in the past. So the Trump administration is, you know, basically um, shifting the ball in the pretty clear knowledge that these, that we will probably not be able to do anything about this or 
that it can be used as a bargaining chip for the wall, that the dreamers will be held hostage around the, the willingness of Congress to build the wall. The wall being, of course, an enormous expense for something that, that even the most conservative people say will probably not be effective. So apart from anything else, apart from whether you believe it or not, but I want to go back to, to uh, what this all means for us as Christians, which is, you know, what we have a generation that is falling away from faith at a faster rate than we have seen in a hundred years, right? And what are we communicating to that generation if we don't stand with the best and brightest of them? as they're being mauled by a broken system. What are we saying to them about the love of Christ? You know, I went out to that demonstration at, at the end of a very long, hard day. I, I'm not a big fan of demonstrations. I'm a big fan of, personally, of, you know, going to visit Congress. <laughs> I'm a big fan of getting thousands of people spending my time getting thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people to call their Congress people, you know, because I think that those are in the end more important at this moment in history. Demonstrations were extremely important at a certain moment where they were more of a surprise. They're extremely important if you get a million people out on the street as happened in Berlin right before the wall fell. They were praying. There were a million people praying on the street every night in Berlin before the wall fell. But they're not also important if you get, you know, 5,000 people in Los Angeles or 1,000 people in Los Angeles. Anyhow, but I thought it was critically important to be out there, not because I thought it was going to change public policy, but because I wanted those kids to see a pastor. And I wore my collar, which I normally, as, a, as an evangelical Lutheran pastor, I normally don't wear a collar. But I wore my collar because I wanted all of those kids to see that there were Christians who were willing to stand with them and walk with them because I want them to know the love of Jesus. And if people are proudly calling themselves Christians and saying to these kids, you know, we don't care about the fact that you're a straight A student and you've been here all your life and you've been invested in by our public education system and you want to get back, we want you gone. What are we saying to them about the love of Christ? Mm -hmm. Right? We're not saying anything particularly true about the love of Christ by our actions, by our lack of action. So for me, it was critically important to be out there to, to, to be that, to be that witness, right? And I would just call on all your listeners, get out there, those kids need you. You know, they are in deep pain. They are in deep pain and they need you. It's fascinating and maybe a sad reality that we have to we have to have this conversation about what it looks like to love your neighbor. I mean, go, going back to this whole idea of being biblical literate when it comes to other people's lives. I mean, for Christ, it came down to love for God and loving others in the same way that we love ourselves. So if we, if we take that literally, if we think about how would we treat ourselves or how would we treat our children? You know, would we ever want our children, our teenagers, or however old they are to be sent away into uncertainty? And the answer is no. no. No good and loving parent would do that. So if that's the way that we love ourselves, therefore the way that we love our neighbor has to match that. Um, and so, you know, you talked about calling our congressman, uh, congresswoman, but what are some ways that individuals, what are some ways that churches can begin to take action of not just loving their neighbor, but really coming around this issue? 
Right, so we've created something called Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is a very loose association, except where people have decided to make it more. Um, but it, it started out just as an idea in January that we just basically called on people across the country to take the Matthew 25 pledge. And there is a matthew25pledge.org website. But the pledge is just, I pledge to protect and defend the vulnerable in the name of Jesus, that's all. It's a bipartisan Christian association, very loose. But in Southern California, we've made it real. And there are a few other places in the country where people have made it real, where we get immigrant and non-immigrant churches together. We stand together to say, how can we accompany the people who are suffering at this moment, from, who are vulnerable people who are, are suffering from the current situation? How do we accompany them? How do we walk with them? How do we raise legal funds for them? How do we defend them? So um, we do have a, a template. We have some templates on the national Matthew25pledge.org. We also have, you can go to Matthew25SoCal, and there's quite a bit more in the way of resources and ideas and different ways that you can accompany people. But I think it's really critical to say, you know, if there are immigrant churches in your community and you're primarily non-immigrant church, go approach them and say, we want to walk with you and support you in this. They will be amazed. But it will be, it will be an Ephesians 2, John 17, 21 moment. You know, remember what John 17, 21 says, um, you know, that the world knows that Jesus has come because of the unity of his followers. And we usually think of that as a traditionally ecumenical, you know, that if Baptists and Methodists get together, then the world knows that Jesus has come. I got to tell you, not so much, right? <laughs> the world can't tell the difference between the Baptists and the Lutherans. If we get together, it doesn't make them feel like Jesus has come. But when immigrants and non-immigrants come together as brothers and sisters, then the world goes, woo, what is this? This is a new thing, and it might awaken them to the love of Christ. So I think that that's the, really the first step. We have some templates for you. We have some ideas for you, some things that other people are doing well that you can, you can start by adapting. But the bottom line is cross that line. Cross that line in the name of Christ so that the world can see that Jesus has come. You know, as I listen to you, it sounds so biblical to do what you're calling us to do. Amen. <laughs> uh, and this, this question comes from uh, John Mark Bose, who's a CBF's partnership and advocacy specialist. And he, he wants to know, how do, you, how do we advise our churches who tend to be more cautious about weighing in on these issues within the current political climate? You know, okay, first of all, I think, I think we have a real confusion in, the, in many churches around the separation of church and state, right? That definitely, for example, in the Lutheran church, we're very clear. I like the Lutheran church's stance on this. We're very clear that we don't do partisan politics as pastors. You know, we do not say a certain politician is anointed. You get into really tricky territory there, right? Um, and tricky and illegal. But that's not the same as weighing in on a public decision in a democracy. You know, we need to weigh in on the issues that impact our lives. We need to give people biblical guidance for dealing with their daily lives. We need to be a voice for those who have no voice. Um, all of those have nothing to do with partisan politics. We, we call Republicans and Democrats alike to have policies 
that are for the shalom of the city. You know, that's what it says in Jeremiah, work for the shalom of the city. Otherwise, you will not have shalom. It doesn't say work for your own shalom and then the city will be good. It says work for the shalom of the city. So, you know, use all the gifts you've been given, including your voice, to stand for the kingdom, right? To call people to, you know, politicians, the government has a divine calling. Read Romans 13. And we need to call our government to live up to its divine calling. We need to call our political leaders to do what God has called them to do. To treat every, you know, it says in Psalm 72, when you pray for the king, that you pray that the king will treat every man, woman, and child as precious. That's what it says, you know, that their blood is precious in his sight. So we need to be out there calling on our leaders, discipling our leaders, pastoring our leaders. That's really a very appropriate role for us. That is not the same as declaring a politician anointed and taking sides in a partisan battle. And people just need to be able to think that through and differentiate it. Hmm. It's also not illegal in any way for the church to weigh in on, on the issues of the day. It's not illegal at all. Um, it is, but it is illegal for the church to weigh in on a particular politician. You're familiar with uh, Ruben Ortiz, who's our uh, Latino field coordinator. And um, he passed a question uh, on to me to ask you. He said, what words of encouragement would you give to the fathers, first generation of dreamers? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the only time that I lost it and started crying at the, at the demonstration was when one of the fathers was speaking and he, he broke down a little bit. Because I'm a mother and, you know, by the grace of God, I mean, my husband's an immigrant, by the grace of God, our daughter was born in this country. Um, and, but she, you know, she's half Guatemalan and, uh, you know, quarter Mexican and she doesn't look any different from these kids. And I can just, I can, I can just really imagine what it's like to, to be so proud of your child. My daughter just graduated college pretty recently and she's the same age as so many of these kids. And to be so proud of your child and all that they've accomplished and then to watch it just all being taken away from them, right? It's, it's horrible. You know, you so, and to see the, the hope die in their eyes and to see them feel confused by other people's rejection of them rather than. So I think that at that moment, the biblical, word encourage becomes so important. I really like that word that Ruben used. Encourage literally means to give courage. You know, when we face the sin of the world hurting our children, you just want to collapse in grief. Well, that doesn't help your child, and it doesn't help any of the other children who we are all one family with. Um, we really have to take courage. We have to be strong for them. We have to... Um, we have to show them that how much they're worth in God's eyes, not only in our eyes, but we have to help them to have courage in this moment. We have to help them to, to be warriors, to, to be peaceful warriors, to stand strong, to know their own worth, to know that Jesus has died for them and that they're of infinite and incalculable worth and, um, and to teach them that to stand on that worth, to not let the world define who they are but to be defined by God and to stand together and to stand with us. You know, we are so sorry as their parents that we could not protect them. But um, 
So we have to just admit our brokenness and then we have to go forward because if you don't go forward, you go backward. So we need to give them courage and we need to take courage and we need to have faith that the God of the resurrection is with us in this struggle. Alexia, thank you for sharing your story. Um, more importantly, thank you for the profound work you're doing for the kingdom of God. Um, this is no small thing, and you are probably not told enough. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. I mean, it's, it is a privilege to, it, that's when in the, in the Hispanic churches, when you're given a responsibility of the church, people call it a privilegio. It's a privilege, and it is a privilege to serve God. And it's a blessing to serve God. And so, you know, when I, I said earlier that I think there's a spiritual gift of justice, you know, a friend of mine, uh, Reverend Rene Molina, said oh, a few years ago that I had the spiritual gift of justice. And my first reaction to him was, oh, Rene, it's not on the list. And he said, the list is not closed. Music is not on the list. And so, you know, a spiritual gift is a is a compulsion in your belly. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. You know, we're not all evangelists. Some of us are have a fire in our belly. We all have to give testimony. We have to be a witness, but we're not evangelists. Evangelists are those who have this fire in their belly to preach the gospel so that other people will be inspired to do their little part, even if that's not their gift. And I really hope, you know, I have a fire in the belly about injustice. I always have. That's my gift. And so I hope that the fire in my belly will inspire your listeners to everybody to do their, their piece, right? The justice equivalent of being witnessed, right? It's whole gospel discipleship, not whole in the gospel discipleship. And whole gospel discipleship means that to be a witness is to work on every level, right? From the most public to the most private, to be a witness to the love of our God. If our listeners want to stay connected with you and continue to learn from you and some of the resources that you have available, what's the best place to turn them? Well, okay. Well, we do have a faithrootedorganizing.net. We have a website there. We have Matthew 25, which if you're concerned about immigration, I would particularly encourage you. It's matthew25pledge.org or matthew25socal. Um, there is a new video that has just been finished for us about Pastor Noe. Anybody is also welcome to contact me personally. I'm available. It's Alexia at alexiasalvatierra.com. And please feel free to connect with me if you want. Um, I speak and teach and train all the time. I make time for it, even though I'm a professor and a pastor and other things, mother, but I, an organizer, but I will make time to, to speak or teach or train because I just really think that we have to get this word out as far as we can. Absolutely cannot end this podcast before we tell you about Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's reference and referral ministry that's managed by Craig Janey. If you feel led to a new church or you're looking to serve your first church, CBF reference and referral can help. From discernment to search and call, CBF can equip you to maximize your search with practical resources through the process. Among these resources is Leader Connect, our high-tech matching database that connects CBF ministries to CBF churches. Fill out your online profile and upload your resume today at cbf.net backslash leaderconnect. That's leaderconnect, one word, leaderconnect. A special thank you to Baptist Theological Seminary of Richmond and CBF Reference and Referral for sponsoring today's episode. Be sure to visit cbf.net 
for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, along with blogs that tell the story of our field personnel, our advocacy, and our church charters from around the fellowship. As you go, may the compassion of Jesus be with you, the strength of the Spirit dwell within you, and the mercy of God empower you.